the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I am not this week, unfortunately, with Lionel Burney in person, but I am joined by him virtually. Hello, Lionel. I'm virtually here, Richard. The virtual Lionel Burney. Virtually in Watford. Virtually in Watford. Um, almost as good as the real thing. Um, you kind of are virtually yourself these days, Lionel. Um, you're wearing some running kit at the moment. Um, just another demonstration of the the athlete that you are these days but anyway um we're also joined by daniel freeb hello daniel hello chap daniel in his berlin bolt hole um we've got lots to discuss today about the racing we're going to hear from a couple of riders we're looking ahead to opening weekend this weekend in belgium which is uh the start of the official season copyright Lionel Burney, isn't that right, Lionel? It is. That is absolutely right. Yes, it all gets underway on Saturday, doesn't it, in Belgium? You're going to be there, aren't you, Richard? You're going to opening weekend. I am, and it, there might be a sense of normality about it again. I, I was going to say for the first time in a couple of years, but actually, two years ago, we did have a very normal opening weekend, and it was it was sort of while those races were going underway that we began to fear uh, what might be coming Europe's way because the UAE tour was going on at the time and there were some COVID cases there and the race was stopped early. But we were very we were very kind of blissful in our ignorance at the time. But last year was very different. This year, uh, it's kind of opening up again to the public. So it'll be interesting to see how um, Hep Newsblad goes on Saturday. Kern of Brussels, Kern on uh, Sunday and then Le Salmon next week as well. So lots lots going on. Um, but what have we got coming up today, Daniel? I was just thinking there, Rich, when you were talking about what happened two years ago, cycling's gone from a uh, COVID outbreak to a COVID outbreak, hasn't he? Alessandro Covi at mm. the Ruta del Sol. Um, he was one of the protagonists in what, well, what was a very intense few days of racing. There's a lot of stage racing in particular going on uh, this February and we're going to be sort of analysing, pondering, deliberating some of what we saw UAE, Ruta del Sol in Andalusia, uh, Algarve, the Var, um, Tour du des, des Alpes-Maritimes, uh, Var. Is it, is it the Haute Var now or is it just the Var? It's just the Var, isn't it? It's a, it's a low bar. Um, uh, I know you, Lionel, spent the weekend with your four television screens set up. I, I've got sort of like this, this Starship Enterprise, um, the Not Watford Cycling Podcast Nerve Centre. Um, you were keeping an eye on all the racing, weren't you? Um, but can you give us a news roundup, please? I should say as well, you didn't mention it there, but we will hear a bit later on from Primoz Roglic, won't we? Um, who returns to racing later this week. You mentioned I needed four screens to watch the racing on Sunday. That isn't actually true because it was the quadruple bill, wasn't it? They were one after another. Whoever was scheduling the races did a fantastic job. You could watch the finish of one and then switch streams and pick up the next one. Uh, did you manage to do the quadruple, either of you? I mean, I did. It was around about six and a half hours worth of cycling that I watched more or less back to back. It did make me wonder... Uh, 
Well, I mean, it was... About your life? <laughs> uh, no, I actually really enjoyed it. There was some, It was great racing. The uh, Particularly the, the three races in Europe, I thought, were really excellent every day. Um, there's been flashes of interest at the UAE Tour so far, but uh, we're going to talk about that racing in this episode, but just give you the headlines, because we've all just watched the latest stage of the UAE Tour, which went... Uh, well, it went up the motorway into the sky, really, didn't it, to Jebel Jace. And it's Tade Pogacar who got his first win of the season. And he is into the red leader's jersey by just a couple of seconds from, I thought, the, the, the man of the day, really, Filippo Ganna, riding up uh, extremely well. A really fast and aggressive stage there. Um, so far, what have we seen in the UAE? Well, Jasper Philipson won his first race of the season. We've seen Mark Cavendish really back to his very best, uh, certainly in terms of the, 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 the shape he cut through the air in that sprint finish that he won. I mean, his win in Oman recently was um, pretty impressive, but there, this felt like another step up in level in terms of the competition as well. And it has opened this question up of whether Fabio Jakobsen or Mark Cavendish will be the quick-step sprinter for the Tour. Uh, Patrick Lefebvre has, uh, well, he's really opened the door to Cavendish by saying that the best rider will go. And so my um, statement a week or so ago that I couldn't see anyone other than Jakobsen being quick-step sprinter at the Tour de France this year, I think uh, going to have to revise that. It's all back on. I guess we'll go on to talk about this more later, Charles, but Ciro is at the Ciro Scognamiglio of La Gazzetta dello Sport. I think he's at the UAE and he sent me a voice message a couple of days ago taken from, I think, the press conference when Cavendish had won and he was asked the question about the Tour de France and Jakobsen and needless to say that question is fast becoming or has already become the the proverbial Merck's question of last year's Tour de France suffice to say Mark Cavendish is not relishing getting or answering that question so the the great the the, the best question of Cavendish at the moment is do you think you will go to the Tour de France instead of Fabio Jakobsen and beat Eddie Merckx's record? <laughs> <laughs> a double hit. Yeah, the double header question. It's unfortunate for him because he is going to be asked that quite a few times between now <laughs> and... Uh, times. Uh, we'll discuss that, I guess. The racing in Europe, I thought, was really good. The Ruta del Sol, which had got underway last week, uh, the outstanding moments for me really were... Well, I thought Sport Vlander and Balois did a really good job on the first day to get uh, Runa Hedegott's uh, the opening stage win there was a bit of a bumping of shoulders with human powered health rider Stephen Bassett on that opening stage all of their team had to pull out a couple of days later because of Covid cases in the camp and uh, Daniel your play on words there Alessandro Locovi he won in Mercia a week or so ago, 10 days or so ago, didn't he? And I thought that win up in the little uphill finish was, uh, well, possibly a Cassiole prize contender. We'll maybe discuss that a bit later on. And the other outstanding performance was Magna Sheffield's stage win for Ineos and a first GC victory for Wout Pohl since uh, the Valenciana stage race back in 2016. Um, he won the Bahrain versus Astana face-off, four against three, wasn't it? But Poles took it ahead of Alexei Luxenko. Did you catch the Ruta del Sol's official song? 
Um, if you go on the website, in the Ruta del Sol um, website, you can listen to their official song. Spanish races are great at this. Um, they're the only, well, it's the only country um, whose races really well, tends to adopt tend to adopt official songs. The Vuelta has done it since the 70s. I was going to do a kilometer zero on, on this last year and never got around to it, but I will this year. But um, yeah, the Vuelta's had, I mean, the Gloria Estefan um, did the Vuelta official song, not commissioned. I think they just they just took it. They just adopted it. Um, appropriated it. Um, Earth, Wind and Fire, September, that was the official Vuelta song sometime in the late 70s. Aha, Take On Me, extraordinary. Magnificent stuff. And any official song from Algarve, Daniel? Um, we could maybe do a Spotify playlist of official songs. Maybe some Fado. Maybe some lovely Fado. Marisa. Some, someone like that. Oh, yeah. It was a quick step affair in Portugal, wasn't it? Fabio Jakobsen won the opening stage and then added another one a bit later on in the race. And Remco Evenepoel sewed up the eighth uh, general classification win of his career by winning the time trial in really impressive fashion. Uh, David Godou and Sergio Iguita won the other uh, uphill stages. And in the south of France, Naira Quintana's rebirth continues, doesn't it? Uh, really impressive weekend for you Quintana. Were wait, you were waiting for the song there, weren't you? You were waiting for a little blast of the song that we had last week, but you're not going to get it. No Nairo, man. We can just play last week's again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Quintana was the star of the race, wasn't he? He attacked on both of the hilly stages. He was picked by Tim Vellens the first time, but uh, made no mistake the second day. He was away with Thibaut Pino for a while, and Pino seemed to sit up perhaps with some recur issues with his back I thought the other man of the race was Caleb Ewan who won the sprint stage on day one and then rode a sort of super domestique role over the climbs uh, the second day and I said it before but I think looks really good with uh, Milan San Remo on the horizon he's going to be racing in Belgium this weekend it'll be interesting to see how he gets on the women's uh, racing is underway with the uh, women's edition of the Valenciana stage race. World champion Elisa Balsamo won the opening stage. There were victories for Ellen van Dijk and Marta Bastianelli as well. And Annemiek van Vluten won overall. Lizzie Banks of Service Course and EF Tibco missed the race because of a COVID positive test. The Women's Tour of Flanders will have an equal prize money pot for the first time uh, when compared with the men. €50,000 up for grabs for both the men's and the women's races. And Lizzie Dignan has announced that she's pregnant for the second time and will return to racing in 2023. Trek have extended her contract to the end of 2024. Do you notice that her, her, her new baby is due on the same date as her other uh, girl was born, Orla? Um, that the new baby is due on exactly the same date. Might suggest that there's been an element of planning involved. I don't know. I mean, maybe to making an assumption there. And That uh, can happen. And, well, thanks to listener Brian Keneally, who sent us an email about Nicholas Roach, who has reached week eight of the Irish version of the entertainment show Dancing with the Stars. This week he scored 17 points for his waltz with partner Karen Byrne. 
It is exactly what I expect from Nicholas so far. Very good in the frame, but it's quick step. Nice, light in the quick actions, but the slows needed a lot more swing. A bit, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Six. Your frame is working. It's good. Now let's show them, judges. And judging by that, a move to quick step, surely, on the cards. Um, Nicholas Roach, he's done well. Eight weeks. I mean, that's I like... Didn't, I didn't hear them say alpha vinyl. <laughs> uh, I just heard quick step there. Eight, so it's unclear. Eight weeks of dancing. I mean, that's a couple of grand tours and almost the complete set of grand tours. If you make week nine, that is three grand tours worth of dancing, isn't it? What other reality shows would you like to see cyclists in? Personally, I'd like to see um, a, a cycling-themed version of MasterChef. Uh, I think that would be excellent. Find out who's decent in the kitchen. I'm not talking about the team chefs. I'm talking about the riders themselves. I mean, we know the team chefs can probably knock up pretty decent meals, um, but seeing who's handy in the kitchen would be interesting. There's been quite a roll call of illustrious cyclists, former cyclists who have taken part in um, reality TV shows, and particularly well, spin-offs or equivalents of the of dancing shows. Um, Mario Cipollini did it. Denis Michael Rasmussen did it. I think Richard Verrant did it in France. Um, Claudia Chiapucci was in the sort of, uh, I think it was L'Isola dei Famosi, the island of the sort of, what's the equivalent of that? I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, something like that in Italy. Um, there have been quite a few, haven't there? Mark Cavendish one day maybe um, go back to his roots as a ballroom dancer as a teenager. Probably hates being asked about that as well, I imagine. Um, but perhaps that's on the cards one day in the future. Um, yeah, I'm a cyclist, get me out of here, where the riders are you know denied uh calories like you know calorie controlled diets and uh i don't know tests on what bikes that kind of thing i don't know something well i i did watch i suppose you could call it a reality well there were a couple of reality shows last year um we talked about one on the podcast didn't we about tom southern coaching a a, a bunch of fourth cats to race together as a team that was on gcn and um also gcn production the zwift academy um, a four-parter, I think, where the the latest intake of Zwift Academy recruits were put through their paces. Some were eliminated as the, the programs went on, and and then you know one female rider, one male rider, one professional contract. So that was a reality show. It was it was very entertaining. But they don't have to ride through a tank of rats or you know anything like that, do they? Well, you didn't watch it, Lionel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great idea. Um, yeah, Back to reality, it is opening weekend this weekend, Omloop Het Newsblad on Saturday and Kerner Brussels Kerner on Sunday with a new course, of course, a slightly different route, no Alder Qualamont anymore, um, but still this kind of 50 kilometre run into the finish, so could be one for uh, the sprinters. We will be out with our episode next week, hot on the heels of those two races on Monday, so stay tuned for our catch up on the opening weekend on Monday. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. 
Thanks very much indeed to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors across all the Cycling Podcast episodes. I'm hoping I'm not going to be interrupted here by uh, the Ruta del Sol song. We seem to have it on some kind of loop. It keeps it keeps butting in. Um, but we're very grateful to Super Sapiens for their support. Um, they also support Service Course, which is out later this week with Lizzie Banks, now out of confinement after her COVID case, and Tom Wally. And the Cycling Podcast Femina returns next week as well with me, uh, Rose Manley and Orla Shinoui. Well, chaps, we have just watched um, the first sort of serious mountain finish of the UAE Tour. Um, it's the first world tour uh, race of the year, um, and that has meant a, a good field led by Tade Pogacar. He won today in pretty convincing fashion. Um, but it was a stage that threatened uh, at various points on that climb to 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 break up. Pogacar was always there. He was always pretty comfortable by the looks of things. But there were one or two surprises on the stage. Tom de Moulin, who'd ridden very well in the time trial on Tuesday, was dropped pretty early on. We heard from Richard Plug, his boss at Jumbo Visma last week, saying that he's very much back to a focus on the Grand Tours um, and he expects him to be in contention when he rides the Giro this year. Well, it wasn't a great sign to see him uh, slipping off the back um, on that climb when the likes of Filippo Ganna uh, were still in that group. And Ghana, perhaps the ride of the day, as you said, Lionel, went very close in the end to taking the, the leader's jersey, just two seconds behind Pagacar on the GC now. But I guess it went pretty much as expected. There's a tougher mountain stage later in the week. Um, and I, I guess at this stage, Pogacar and Cavendish, who we'll probably go on to talk about a bit later on, are the two um, headlines from the UAE Tour at this point. Yeah, I think so, Rich. I mean, first of all, I was very impressed yesterday with Pogacar's time trial. He was fourth. I mean, he finished fourth in the equivalent time trial last year at UAE, um, which was a bit longer, but over four kilometres, or just over four kilometres for him to finish fourth um, on a, a pretty windy course just kind of underlines how how powerful, how strong he is, what good form he's in. And then today he did what, what we've seen from him many times before. And it just makes him, I mean, I made the point um after the tour de france last year that he's just so lethal on these uphill finishes and it's such a i mean less so in a race like the uae tour although ultimately i think he, he will go on to win it um, but you know these these sprints at the end of uphill finishes um which often allow him to you know gain a couple of seconds as well as the bonus they, they just give him such a cushion and um and they're also i think a, a real measure of his superiority although today you know the pace was so fast all the way up um, that it was difficult for anyone to get away I think you really then do see the hierarchy of form abilities um, where everyone is in their sort of training preparation in those last 300 meters I mean anyone who's sort of ridden a bike done anything um, of that ilk um, you know whether it's run a race or whatever um, you, you do tend to see that hierarchy sort of emerge um, in in the closing meters of a race don't you yeah, you do, Daniel, and Pogacar did look completely under control, like he had everything under control all the way up that climb. It's a strange one, isn't it? We've seen it before, very wide road. It lends itself to some slightly peculiar-looking racing because the the group just gets wider first, and then it narrows down um, as it got right to the um, 
the very end of the climb, that's when the differences were a little bit more obvious. But um, I thought UAE Team Emirates, as you'd expect from them on their home race, uh, really took it up early. Micah was looking very good. Almeida, although he kind of drifted back a bit um, right at the end, was also looking pretty good right until the finish. But Pogacar... Well, holding off Adam Yates and Alexandra Vlasov um, and, you know, really uh, nullifying that little opening up by Ruben Guerrero of EF Education. Um, it just, yeah, looked like he had it all under control and he's in the lead. And with the summit finish on the final day, it's very difficult to look past him repeating his overall victory in the UAE Tour. Um, and I suppose the interesting thing was just to see how close the likes of Yates and Vlasov actually were to him. I was, was impressed with um, Vlasov and Bora Hansgrohe in general as well today. Um, but you mentioned the time trial and uh, Stefan Bissiger of EF Education won that ahead of Filippo Ganna by just seven seconds. Uh, he was, uh, well, it's a reverse of the equivalent time trial in last year's race wasn't it and in fact the top six was almost identical just a sort of shuffling of the order in the time trial with Pogacar Almeida and Mikel Bjerg the other riders in the top places um, and, and de Moulin in there as well uh, this year of course but um, yeah it's uh, I don't know it feels a little bit underwhelming in terms of a spectacle compared to um, the Ruta del Sol Algarve and Tour des Alpes, I think. I don't know why that is. Is it because of the slightly nullified flat stage where the wind was blowing and there really was a sort of truce, wasn't there, for quite a long time? They were trundling along very, very slowly until, well, the last sort of 10 kilometres when it picked up to um, come into the finish where Cavendish won. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't say it's been the most eye-catching racing i actually thought both oman and the saudi tour looked a bit better and a bit more interesting than the uae tour so far i don't know what you think yeah i mean one of the one of the sort of uh, slightly grotesque aspects of this race is when there's not a lot of action happening which has been the case on a couple of these flat stages the cameras pan around to show off all the the, you know, the, the biggest swimming pool in the world, the greatest aquarium in the world, the, you know, any number of um, facilities that are there that, that are best in the world or biggest in the world, um, all looking brand new. And I don't know, um, we talk about cycling as being, you know, acting like an advert for a country. Um and its landscape. If you, if you want to see the biggest aquarium in the world, the, once upon a time you used to have to watch MTV Cribs. It'd be someone like, it would usually be someone like Snoop Dogg who had the the biggest aquarium in the world. I mean, I just made that up about the aquarium. I don't think, I don't think we have seen an aquarium, but we've seen a lot of other, other things that, that just feel to me like, um, you know, when we, do, as I was saying, when we talk about cycling as being a great advert for a country showcase for a, a landscape, etc. that's not really what I, what I have in mind when I think about that, but um, each to their own, I suppose. Um, as you say, Lionel, the Saudi Tour, we had sort of variety in the landscape there and interesting racing too. And I guess this race being the first World Tour stage race of the year, there's a greater sort of level of expectation around it, perhaps. Um, that stage in particular, the one eventually won by Cavendish with a really thrilling uh, sprint, um, it was it was 
it was pretty hard going to watch. You didn't have to watch it, of course. Um, but at one stage, Jasper Philipson jumped off his bike and ran along for a bit and then jumped back on, <laughs> which, you know, he went pretty close in the end. I want, I just wonder if that little effort uh, might have cost him. Chaps, before we get onto the sprints, just a couple of questions from me to you related to what we've discussed so far. Um, Stefan Bissiger, first yellow jersey at the Tour de France in July. Is it July or do we start in June this year? Um, anyway, it's a 13-kilometer time trial in Copenhagen. It's going to be perfect for him. I think he's already said he's targeting that. So um, I want your thoughts on that. And also Pog, um, well, this, this would be the ninth stage race win out of 16 in his career. Um, pretty extraordinary. But um, of of immediate relevance over the next few weeks, um, he has said that he's going for Milan-San Remo. And... UAE or Fernando Gaviria, their sprinter and a guy who's done relatively well in San Remo before, has said that he's not going to be in that race because Pogacar is going to be the team leader. Thoughts, chaps? Of course, we all know Filippo Ganna is going to win Milan San Remo this year. He didn't come through for me last year, but yeah, he is I mean, win he it said year. in a he did say in an interview with in L'Equipe this week, I think, Pogacar, that he would like to win all five monuments. Um, and he has already won, of course, I mean, Lombardia I'd like and Liege, to date Liege Swift, which are the two. It's, it's unlikely to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the two. Well, I think it's more likely that Pogacar will win all five monuments than that you will date Taylor Swift. No offense. Extraordinary. Um, Extraordinary. Maybe, maybe Connor Swift. I'm very, um, I'm very but, happy with myself. <laughs> just for the for the record. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, Pogacar, uh, Milan San Remo. Easiest race to finish, hardest race to win, isn't it? So if he can, uh, if he can get that one in the bag, um, then I would, I would start he, to he said, back him for that. He said that he's going to treat it as an, as an adventure, and if he gets bored, he's going to look at the scenery. He said in the keep, he'll enjoy the lovely Italian scenery. That's the spirit, isn't it? Fair enough. Very much the spirit we spirit. we yeah. adopt when we go to Italy for bike races. Maybe we get him to keep an audio diary during Milan San Remo. I can see him doing damage definitely on the. Pod Joe. Um, I just have sort of visions, you know, that very kind of that all action, um, shoulders rocking over the handlebars, um, the way he sprints and the way we've seen him attack before. I can almost picture him in my mind's eye doing that on the, you know, the classic spot where attacks always go on the Pod Joe. Um, you know, if it's not Alaphilippe, if it's not Wout van Aert, I think it could well be Pogacar, which is not to say that um, he will be able to unshake those guys and unshake everyone else. But I, I'm going to be very curious to see him in San Remo. Headline writer's dream, isn't it? Pogacar on the Poggio. There we go. What about those sprints then? Because uh, Jasper Philipson was lining up for his first race of the season. I thought he looked really good on the the first day ahead of Sam Bennett, Viviani, Grunewagen. Cavendish kind of got squeezed and boxed in a bit, didn't he, on that opening day? I think I'm remembering that rightly. And then, well, the second day... As we said at the start, it was Cavendish of old, wasn't it? The thing that was really noticeable was just how low over the front of the bike he was, Cavendish. It was the kind of the um, Cavendish in his pomp, sprinting style, um, that sort of effortless low position that he adopts. And uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that he won by a, a, a mile, but um, it was clearly ahead of Philipson and Ackerman. I mean, it's a decent field here, isn't it? And that was an impressive victory. 
What we see from modern sprinting is just how hard it is to be consistently, you know, the best the best sprinter year after year. We're seeing, you know, Pascal Ackerman a couple of years ago we thought was along perhaps with Jakobsen and Grunewig and was was going to be one of the dominant sprinters. Um, Sam Bennett also um, a couple of years ago at the Tour, obviously the green jersey winner, and has sort of struggled to put his sprint together again so far. Um, I'm almost more bamboozled, blown away, amazed by Cavendish's win and the, the manner of his win here than I was at the Tour de France last year, in a way. Um, you know, I've watched that sprint that he won in the at the UAE Tour a few times now, just just to kind of because it was a it was a messy sprint where he had to really improvise and it wasn't on a plate for him at all. Um, he had to use all his skills. It was a headwind. He went early. It required you know skill, strength, speed, and you know he won in a very impressive way. And it's it's up there with with his best sprint wins which you have to sort of remind yourself are a decade or more ago to see him performing at that level now is just a year ago if you told me you know that that Cavendish would have done what he's done I would not have believed you yeah I mean that day he also took the kind of long way round he took a longer line it was a slight bend and he went um, on the outside of Philipson and I mean we mentioned last week that he would have his I said he would have his A lead out team at um, UAE that wasn't the case he's got his A lead out he's got um, quick step Alpha Vinyl's best lead out man in Michael Morku but the rest of the team is really inexperienced and yeah it's just been really interesting there in those two sprints so far to watch how teams have tried to approach the last 10 kilometers and often get it wrong and Cavendish's very inexperienced team did that on the first of the two sprints and you know I think because the roads are so wide um, in the UAE that a lot of teams and I saw this with Bora particularly in the first sprint um, that lulls them into a false sense of security or false the false idea that they can leave it very late and they can come around the outside um, rather than you know spending the last 10 kilometers fighting for position right in the belly of the bunch um, but that's been really interesting to see and that you know is makes Cavendish's win even more impressive just um, bearing in mind how inexperienced that team is but you know thinking about the question that shall not be broached um, I found myself wondering what what does Michael Morco think because he's led out Jakobsen this year already and he's led out Cavendish now at UAE and you know I talked a couple of weeks ago about that the different sort of emotional kind of amplitude of a Cavendish victory and you sort of saw that after the the finish the other day you know that the, the way he was hugging his teammates and and you know sort of whispering in their ear and trying to g them up and and it is a that's very different from when you see a, a Jakobsen win but those two there's going to sort of be um, a head to head battle almost in a couple of weeks because Cavendish is going to do Tirreno and Jakobsen is going to do Paris Nice and I know that at the end of Tirreno Adriatico that is where the sort of race program that's already penciled in for Cavendish, i.e. The, the Giro, it's either going to be inked in or it's going to be rubbed out and changed um, after Tireno. So, um, it, you know, it might simply come back, come down to who looks best in either one of those races. you you got to, if, you, if you're sending him to the Giro, it, it's not just the, it's not, it's not just a commitment that begins on the first day of the Giro. That's the thing. If you say to Cavendish, right, you're going to the Giro, that locks him into 
preparing for the Giro as well and really organizing the rest of the season around the Giro. And I just I just wonder if Quick Step, being the team that they are and having other sprinting options as well, um, might might just keep them both for the tour in a way. You know, I mean, what what does Cavendish really gain from going to the Giro and winning stages at the Giro, being honest? You could keep that question, you know, having said that, there's nothing, you know, Jakobsen has not put a foot wrong, has he? I mean, you'd have to say that for all that Cavendish win, especially the other day, really did catch the eye. Jakobsen's wins equally, or even more so, have caught the eye. He's he's looked very he's, impressive. He's obliterated indeed. people this year. He's not just one. Yeah. yeah, so he's not he's not done anything wrong. Um He's got a pretty unblemished record so far this year. So I don't, you know, I would still put him slightly ahead. But if you're a quick step, if you're Patrick Lefebvre, you might want to keep your options open for a bit longer. You might, but can you really imagine uh, quick step going to the Giro without a sprinting option? Um, and then... Yes, they did it, did, it, did it last year. I think they've done it a few times. Well, they actually. did it last year because they had so such high hopes with Evanapol, didn't they, I suppose. But yeah, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. But as you say, it, the, the Giro decision does kind of half make the Tour decision. Because if you imagine, for example, um, taking Cavendish to the Giro and saying, well, you might also go to the Tour. You know, is, is that realistic? Is that likely? What are the chances of them? Quick step taking both of them to the tour, I would say very, very slim, just because of all of the other riders that they've got to try and fit into the team. And then Jakobsen, if he weren't to go to the Giro or the tour, then he's left with the welter again. And that just feels a bit like kind of Groundhog Day for Jakobsen, really. And he does deserve a shot at the Tour de France. I mean, it's a fantastic problem for Lefebvre and the sports directors at Quick Step to have, but it, it won't be an easy one to solve. And uh, that's why I said a, a little while ago that whilst it looked like Jakobsen was, was you know, very much in the driving seat, um, that gap has definitely closed this week. Uh, Lefebvre has acknowledged that publicly um, and that there there might be a bit of a contest between the two of them, but as you say, the the Giro will probably you know complete the picture for us. I I can't see how they can leave it um, into June because they would have to not pick either of them for the um, Giro. I would have thought, but who knows? I mean, it's just uh, I'm glad I'm not having to make that decision. I mean, one thing I would say is that I I don't believe there's any animosity between Cavendish and Jakobsen. On the contrary, however. I would not want to be in a match with Mark Cavendish, um, knowing the sort of competitor that he is, and mm. if he if he really does, or, or Fabio Jakobsen, that that's true as well. Actually, yeah. the other thing is Jakobsen and Evenepoel would get on very well and have been a bit of a double act, haven't they? They've done um, similar programs so far this season. They've done quite a few media things together, and not just this season but last. I mean, yeah, maybe that could be a. a a duo that goes to the welter and gives uh, quick step a sort of double edge to them. But I just think that Jakobsen's time for the Tour de France is, is coming. It, it really should be this year that he gets that opportunity. Um, his results and performances deserve it. But as you say, you know, you can't write off Cavendish when it comes to, you know, that first big scrap is to um, win the race against his teammate, isn't it? Um, I don't know how they would sort it out. Maybe put them head to head in a small race and say they're on their own. I don't know. 
that's not going to happen either, is it? But it'd be a fantastic prospect. Just just a little um, a little quite interesting point on Quick Step and the Giro. The last time they won a stage in the Giro, I think, was twenty eighteen, with several for Elia Viviani and one for um, Max Schachmann. Um, I don't think they've won a stage at the Giro in the last three editions. I don't think, which is quite remarkable in a way, and and it would, I suppose, um, it sort of in that in that context, it wouldn't perhaps be so much of a shock if they didn't take one of their top sprinters to the Giro. But you know, who knows? Before we move on from the UAE tour, just a little curious thing that I'm sure we all spotted on the go slow day when the headwind and the sandstorm, the breakaway that day was three riders from Gazprom. And uh, that just, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice that because obviously we are all very aware of the escalating tension between Russia and Ukraine. And while there are some people who think that sport and politics shouldn't mix, I mean, you know, sport is increasingly and probably has always been a geopolitical play thing. Um, Gazprom has got a lot of interest in sport across Europe. They sponsor the Football Champions League and UEFA are under pressure um, with that sponsorship and with the Champions League final due to be held in Russia in St. Petersburg in May uh, when we'll be at the Giro. Um, all of that's being discussed. Uh, German press have taken to covering up Gazprom logos in photographs of the football team Schalke, who are sponsored by the Russian energy company. It's a majority state-owned Russian energy company, and it sponsored the cycling team for a long while. And I just, I mean, I don't have any information on this at all, but it was just really curious to me that three riders from the same team um, would be up the road in isolation you know, three riders in a group of 10 yes but three riders um from the same team and from that team in particular given everything that's going on in uh the east of ukraine and and the border with russia i found that quite uh, notable and not necessarily for a good way perhaps being uh, you know looking a little bit too deeply at things there i don't know but uh, certainly caught my eye getting at all lionel with them um, your observations on gazprom going up the road what's always um struck me as odd about that team that which has been around for quite a long time now is that such a huge company with so much money um sponsors such a sort of middling team with all due respect to the riders um they could have pr- presumably they could have the strongest team in the sport without um uh, you know hardly noticing the money uh going into the account of the team i would have thought so it's it's odd that they their involvement in the team in the sport is is kind of modest compared to their involvement in other sports what day was it that they had the guys down the road stage two what day was that monday do you think on tuesday do you think on tuesday more people went out and bought gazprom from the local sh- uh, shops that's not really, <laughs> no i mean that's that's not sure you truly understand the sponsorship model here, Daniel. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying Vladimir Putin was on the phone to um, Evgeny Popov in the team car saying, right, can you get some riders down the road in the UAE tour? I, it's just, you know, you can't look at um, sport and geopolitics in isolation at the moment, I don't think. And as I say, I don't think probably ever could. I, it just... Uh, caught my eye that's all and we're going to talk about other things that caught our eye in a sporting uh, sense aren't we in this part um but 
but uh, yeah, I don't know. Leave leave that one oh, there. Well, I guess. Sure, well, if you've got any thoughts on that, listeners, do get in touch and <laughs> just direct them direct them at Lionel Bernie. Uh, anyway, moving on. What did catch your eye in all the other racing? It's um, I mean, we we didn't mention in talking about the UAE tour the performance uh, today of Luke Plapp. He got the headlines for his, his time trial bike having a a mechanical problem before the race. So he rode the time trial on his road bike, um, which kind of, in a strange way, reignited the debate around time trial bikes, a debate that we had last week in which we will return to. We had a lot of feedback on that question, actually, of time trial bikes and Chris Froome's call to, well, to think about whether um, they should be used. We'll hear Primoz Roglic a bit on this later on as well. Um, but Luke Platt today on the Mountain Road, an outstanding race, and our friends in Australia will certainly have watched that with great interest because... You Did know, he ride an outstanding race until the last 400 metres or so? 500 yeah, metres? I, I mean, I thought it was a really gutsy performance. And, you know, he was riding, obviously, for Adam Yates. And I thought for Adam Yates, he did a brilliant job, especially with that, that late attack, um, which had Adam Yates maybe had the the sparkle that he had last year... Um, might have might have had a, a more successful result for the team, but I thought Platt rode rode really well, and I think you know big did, things. Did are they expected cannibalize? Did they cannibalize Filippo Ganna with that acceleration? Well, that's yeah, that's that's possible. I mean, yeah, that, that I hadn't thought about that actually. That's a good point because they were obviously riding for the stage win with Adam Yates, but also GC for Ghana. Um, so perhaps that attack that acceleration at the end maybe did cost Ghana the, the the race lead so i take it all back um luke plapp um terrible performance hanging no, no. head in shame <laughs> <laughs> no no but you know i know that there's a great deal of excitement in australia about him and his prospects and the signs so far are pretty good and it was really over the last week um again notable the, some of these races for the performances of young riders um Plapp's young teammate, Magnus Sheffield, the American rider, um, won a stage in, was it the Ruta del Sol? I can't remember. It was, it was Richard, the Ruta yeah. Del Sol. yeah. <laughs> he won a stage, very well taken stage, the Ruta del Sol. He's, he's got a sort of track background, a skiing background as well, you were telling me, Daniel. Um, but he showed fantastic um, sort of finishing speed uh, to, to hold off the group and win that stage um 19 years old still incredible he's a very sort of fresh-faced kind of typically nordic looking um young cat isn't he and why nordic why do i say nordic well he's half norwegian and i was had no idea that he spoke norwegian or was half norwegian until the world championships last year when um, he was being interviewed by my Norwegian colleagues at TV2 and speaking, you know, answering their questions um, fluently. Very impressive. He, he reminded me physically a bit of Greg LeMond as well, his his sort of blue eyes and, and blonde hair. Um, but he, I spoke to him at the World Championships as well. And, you know, just to get a bit of background on him, he was under contract with Rally, uh, a contract that he broke in order to join Ineos. And... Uh, yeah, very. He'd, he'd ridden a decent time trial in the under twenty three championships, and I spoke to him at the finish. Let's hear a little bit from Magnus Sheffield. You've signed obviously for Ineos Grenadiers for I think the next three years, a three year contract. So, um, how did that move come about? You know, because if you've not been racing that much, how did how was contact made, and how did they sort of keep tabs on you? 
kind of a hard question for me to answer. Uh, I think that'd be a better answer for them to, uh, for them. But um, yeah, there was some communication with them um, during COVID. I did uh, set a new world record for the juniors in the pursuit, and that definitely sparked some interest uh, because yeah, there's no racing, and I think it showed some of the uh, fortitude and commitment I had with my training even with a year without racing. And then there was an opportunity for me to join the team now uh, after my first year. And so, yeah, it seemed like a really good fit. It was also an English speaking team. And yeah, I think the kind of style of racing they want to look to the next couple of years and the team that they're trying to build with young talents, I think it just was a perfect match. Well, Plap as well, obviously, is another one who's joining. So there's a real kind of crop of talented young riders. Is that the feeling that you get that they're building something now for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's you've got it spot on with the case in that they're really trying to uh, bring in a lot of new talents, uh, especially young riders, because you've seen there's a new generation of the way the racing is working with um, winners becoming younger and younger. And you see, like with the Grand Tour contenders, but I think you can even see it in the one-day races as well that, yeah, once you get the knowledge and the experience in racing in the peloton, the ages have become quite a bit younger. And so I think you can now be, especially with the sport becoming a lot cleaner now, you can be successful at a younger age. Um, and that's exactly what Ineos Grenadiers is trying to do now. So a little blast of Magnus Sheffield there, one of the, the great young prospects who showed his talent. And another one who caught my eye, Johannes Stan Mitet. I don't know if I've said his name correctly. Let's hear how it's actually said. Yep, uh, my name is uh, Johannes uh, Stan Mitet. That was Johannes himself because when I saw him uh, on the final stage of uh, in Algarve doing a, a great job on some pretty tough climbs for Tobias Foss, his fellow Norwegian and teammate at Jumbo Visma, the name rang a bell and I remembered that I'd met him at the Jumbo Visma training camp in, near Alicante last year and uh, spoken to him there. Uh, he's a skier as well. Um, in fact, he was Norwegian champion pretty recently, a, a cross-country skier. Um, again, very young, just turned 20. He's actually a development team rider this year and next year with Jumbo Visma, and he will then begin a three-year contract with the team. So they've got him secured for a long time, but his performance on Sunday um, could accelerate his progress to the World Tour team, perhaps. And let's just hear a little bit from him about his background on, on skis. I'm the um, second Norwegian at the team, also Tobias in the World Tour. We're actually from the same city. Yeah, uh, in the winter I'm a skier and uh, when I'm together with the team I'm a cyclist. So, so yeah, uh, tell me about the, the, the skiing. I mean, um, is that your original sport? Yeah, I wouldn't say... Like, uh, some say that Norwegian are born with skis on their feet. So, uh, of course, from I was a little uh, little guy, uh, I always uh, always went skiing. And uh, cycling came when I was uh, 11, I think. So, you could say I started with skiing, but uh, from also early on, I was, uh, I was doing cycling. You're not too new to cycling then? Not too new. Downhill skiing or cross-country or both? Cross-country skiing, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course, yeah. Or that... not of course, but um, I think um, like uh, the endurance part of um, cycling and skiing, they're going quite well together. Of course, there are some muscle groups who are don't need it in cycling, but uh, I think they they works uh, pretty well together. How do the team feel about you um, competing and skiing as well? Are they quite happy for you to keep that going? Yeah, I think like that's 
some of the reason why I was uh, con uh, where they contacted me at first. Um, I was told like they were uh, looking for uh, riders with other backgrounds. So um, I think uh, yeah, they've always been like uh, very lots lots of thumbs up uh, mm -hmm. about the skiing. So that's. Really I was good. asking if they'd ever had any skiers before on the yeah. team. But there's one, isn't there? Quite, quite well known. Who's done all right? The first one. Yeah, yeah. that's good. <laughs> um, and I mean, do you imagine that you'll keep that that balance going for a bit longer then, while you're still young, or or at some point will you just just become a hundred percent a cyclist? Yeah, of course. It's I still like skiing, but at some moment it's hard to like keep uh, competing in both at a very high level. So uh, hopefully uh, a year or two more, uh, and then we'll see. But uh, I think in the in the end it will uh, probably go uh, the cycling's way. What what sort of level have you been at as a skier? I mean, have you been in national championships and so on? How how have you got on? Yeah, earlier like in uh, yeah, of course in 2020 the the championships were cancelled like two days before. <laughs> But in 2019, I was actually a Norwegian champion in the 10 kilometer uh, classic. So uh, it's been the those years before. It's been like really hard to quit any of the sports because mm. I feel like I've got got a good level in both. But uh, in the end, I think uh, one sport will like uh, kill the opportunities for the other. Well, we mentioned the Norwegian link with Sheffield, Rich, and uh, it's interesting times for Norwegian cycling, Norwegian, well, endurance sport um, in general. I'll, I'll explain a little bit why in a second. But um, you, we, we talked about the Uno X team a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? We talked to, we've talked about Tobias, Tobias Foss and the two young gentlemen there. Um, have you guys, have you guys heard anything? Are you aware of um, what? Norwegians have been doing triathlon over the last couple of years. Um, there's sort of three Norwegians that have emerged almost from nowhere and they've started almost dominating triathlon. There's a really interesting story behind it. Um, their coach is, I think he has an engineering background, again, someone with no real sort of history in, in triathlon. And he's taken a really sort of visionary approach to a very scientific, like eye-wateringly scientific approach to training. I mean, this reports of him burning the burning the athlete's feces i mean this is tough for me to talk about as you can imagine and then analyzing it and you know really sort of thinking outside the box there's a great story um that sort of summarizes all of this written by a guy called adam skolnick in the new york times recently look that up if you're interested but um yeah the norwegians are emerging as a real force in cycling and as i said already having triathlon burning their feces i mean you did very well Lionel, to keep a poker face at that but um i'm just i'm just astonished that daniel's ventured into that um territory really domain um yeah yeah it's on his first time it was very uncomfortable the first time for everything um interesting i mean sheffield's performance was really impressive but i think Alessandro Covey the day before was more so and i said at the start of the show today whether or not that is a contender for the Cassoulet Prize, I, just because of the attack, the acceleration and the way he held it for so long and then still had strength to kick again. Um, and, well, it just reminded me that he was uh, in the thick of things at the Giro last year, wasn't he? Uh, he lost out to Mauro Schmidt 
on the day to Montalcino, and he was up the road in the break on the stage to uh, the Monte Zoncalan as well, wasn't he, when uh, Lorenzo Fortunato won. Is that right? Yes. And, of course, he won in uh, southern Spain last week or a week or so ago. So clearly in very good form. And then another rider with UAE Team Emirates who's... um, you know, bagging victories but I thought that was a really smart win they obviously lost out a bit two days later when basically pretty much everybody who was anyone got up the road in that big break um, I said at the start it was Bahrain 4 Astana 3 and it was no surprise that it came down to a one Bahrain rider versus one Astana rider at the finish what was a surprise was that Walt Poles took the sprint I don't know what you thought because I thought Lutsenko was in the perfect position we've seen how good form he's been in he is a pretty fast finisher and I thought on that sort of finish he would come round Poles and win the stage but he didn't it was a, I think it was a big surprise to Astana as well Lionel and they well on the face of it they really messed up that day and it looked as though yet again Superman Lopez um, had been sort of tucked up by his own team and he was sort of left stranded in the group behind on his own while Lutsenko went away with Poles. Poles who was challenging Superman on the general classification. Lutsenko actually worked with Poles so he sort of rode Poles away from Superman on general classification but I believe um, well the Astana um, DS um, Beppe Martinelli explained afterwards that well they, they didn't have many riders there. I don't know whether they had five riders in Ruta del Sol they've had problems with Covid um, over the last few weeks so they were they were quite under strength and they thought that it would be difficult to defend the leadership the following day because they they were so short on numbers so they, they de- decided to go for the stage win instead with Lutsenko and they thought Lutsenko would beat Poles which wasn't the case. I mean maybe we underestimated Poles there because Poles remember won Liege Baston Liege in a in a sprint in, in quite cold conditions I remember but he's not he's not a slack complete you would, if you were if you were away in a, just looking at we're looking at him. And yeah. build. If you're away with him in a break, you'd fancy your chances. I would fancy my chances, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, it's unlikely that I would be in that scenario, I think. I thought that was a really interesting stage. It wasn't, uh, the profile didn't make it look like it was going to be outstanding, but I think the just the up and down nature of the roads and the composition of the break and the fact that it was that powerful Bahrain victorious quartet because they also had Damiano Caruso in there. They had uh, Mikel Lander in there and Jack Haig against the three Astana and then the kind of the freelancers, if you like, Simon Yates, Ben O'Connor, Mauri Van Sevenen, they were, you know, trying to do something up against uh, the numbers. And uh, I thought the way the stage played out was really absorbing. And the final day was interesting as well. Leonard Kamner, who tried to win uh, earlier on in the race, finally got a victory for Bora Hansgrohe. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a, a good race. But what do we call it? Do we call it the Ruta del Sol or do we call it the Vuelta Andalusia? Daniel, you're the arbiter on things like this. It's interchangeable, is it? Um, or? I've, I've, yeah, I've always called it the Ruta del Sol. I mean, we were we were playing the official anthem, weren't, weren't we, earlier? And I noticed that the website is Vuelta uh, Andalusia. Um, did you see the... F- I don't think it was worn in the race, but did you see the jersey that was being awarded for the best Andalusian rider on every stage? Uh, the Andalusian flag is green and white. Um, if you're familiar with... 
Real Betis, the Seville Football Club, and they play in green and white. And the flag, the Andalusian flag, is the same colour. And it was a very fetching, sort of almost like a Moorish pattern um, in green and white that was awarded to the best Andalusian rider at the end of every stage. The website is Vuelta Andalusia. The official title of the race is Vuelta Ciclista a Andalusia. And then Ruta del Sol is a sort of subtitle, I guess. Um, but I've always thought of it as a Ruta del Sol, the, the race of the sun. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science in Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast since 2016. Very grateful to them. And if you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, and I will be going there soon to order some more Blueberry Go Energy Bars because I'm running very low on them and they're my favoured uh, snack when I'm out on my bike, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout enter the discount code SISCP25. SISCP25. Lionel, you mentioned that Daniel is the arbiter of race names. He is also, of course, the arbiter of coffee and when to drink coffee. On behalf of the the nation of Italy, the entire country speaks for Italy. I think you're an official ambassador of some kind, aren't you, Daniel? If you're not, you should be, really. Um, But Michael Hogg um, sent us a link to a little video by James Hoffman, who is a... um, well, former world champion barista. You must be familiar with him, uh, Daniel. He's also from your neck of the woods. He's from the Midlands. Um, but it's quite an interesting um, video where he says that one reason why the Italians ban cappuccino after 11 o'clock is that they're all lactose intolerant. They're not. Um, but he talks about lactose malabsorption um, and how it can be quite geographically specific. So it, people in the north, I, people like us, are less lactose intolerant than people in the south i mean i'm i'm grossly summarizing there what he says in the video and i would urge people to actually watch it and don't write in complaining about what i've just said because i don't know what i'm talking about but he does so go and look at his video it's quite interesting all about why the italians don't drink cappuccino after 11 o'clock um we spoke a bit about drones last week and their possibilities uh, to cover races we had quite a lot of feedback on that, including from one of our producers, Adam Bowie, um, who is a drone user himself. And he talks a bit about the practicalities of cameras on drones. While they'd be environmentally excellent for the Tour de France, for example, the issue, he says, is one of batteries. Dr- drones can't fly for more than about 30 minutes and they have limited ranges too. And a pilot needs to see their drone at all times. Um, so either the pilot and operator are going to be in a car anyway, or you need a relay of pilots alongside of the course. So there are practical difficulties. He, he does poo-poo my idea of drones replacing team cars, and uh, not surprisingly, a bit of a battery weight issue there, he says. And he also mentioned, you mentioned um, 8G cameras, uh, Daniel. He says, he thinks you mean 8K. Um, La Liga is using 8K cameras, but it's not really the resolution that matters, he says. Um, that's marketing spin. Um, and goes into some more technical details. So Adam, uh, quite a lot of feedback there. He was producing last week's episode, so obviously heard it first. Um, another corrections corner, Tom Murray wrote, you're, you talked about the, uh, the the Olympic motto. They recently changed the motto, um, according to Tom. Um, it's now, well, they've added the word together. They say fair or together, okay. Yeah. yeah. 
So it's all in Greek, so I don't want to risk reading it out, but they've added together. Citius Altius Fortius Cum Communita, I think is the... I forgot that you speak well, uh, Greek. No. <laughs> Ancient Greek. Presume it's Greek, is it? Or is it Latin? I think it's Latin. I was going to just say, I just check that. I mean, I'm thinking with the Olympics, Latin, it must yeah. be Greek, but it might be Latin. Well, it might be all Greek to you, Richard, but it's actually Latin. <laughs> Um, another clarifications uh, corner, out, but we won't. We won't. <laughs> another clarifications corner, uh, Daniel. This is back to the drone issue because we did have a lot of correspondence about this. Uh, we also had an, a very interesting email from Ryan McKee, who's a, a licensed drone pilot in the US, who made some of the similar points that Adam Bowie made. But uh, Fabian Haider. I hope I've said that correctly, says that the incident in skiing a couple of years ago, uh, a drone didn't actually hit the skier, but it landed on the ground, crash landed on the ground right behind Marcel Herscher. Um, so yeah, nearly, not quite, but nearly. And finally, Richard, you were talking about tightening up your skewer whilst riding along weren't you? Uh, mm. We saw mm. uh, Lutsenko... No, I was cleaning the forks, actually. Cleaning your forks. Lutsenko was tightening up his skewer in the recent Spanish gravel race, and listener Andy Kerr wrote in to remind us about the incident in the neutralised zone at the Amstel Gold Race a few years ago. I think it was 2016, where Fabio Fellini uh, was leaning forward to, I think, tighten up his skewer, got it wrong, and went clean over the handlebars, and there is footage of that on YouTube. He says that he took his better half for a romantic weekend in Maastricht, which just happened to coincide with the Amstel Gold. You old smoothie, Andy. Mm. Eh? <laughs> a likely story. Um, Greg Tomlinson also wrote in uh, another contender for um, a great performance that didn't result in a win. He suggests Pogacar, stage eight of last year's Tour de France. Uh, Dylan Toons won the stage, but that performance, says Greg, would probably have won the Rolling Cassily Award in 2021 had the award existed. Poor Pog, he says. Well, he did have the consolation of winning the Tour de France, uh, which might have might have been some consolation. But Lionel, on the Rolling Cassily Award, um, you, I think you said in the newsletter, sorry, the 1101 Cappuccino, as it's called, and you can sign up for that at thecyclingpodcast.com. You said that Brandon McNulty is still the holder of that, but I think I thought we decided that Alexei Lutsenko was now the we, ruling captain. We certainly winner. did in the episode, but I didn't want to spoiler it for anyone who hadn't listened to the episode. I mean, people are on tenterhooks here, aren't they? So, you know, I didn't want to send out the 1101 cappuccino by mm. email and then people go, oh, you've ruined it. Now you've, you've spoiled the race. I mean, no spoilers. Um, the question is, yeah. yes or no, does Alessandro Covey take over from Lutsenko as the leader of the classification? Is he the holder of the Cassoulet Bowl? I don't know, Covey, what do you reckon? Uh, I'm inclined to keep it with Lutsenko for the moment, but what do you think, Daniel? Um, I think keep it with Lutsenko, but Covey's a baller, mm. and we will see more of this from him uh, as the season goes on. On with the racing? Yeah, any other talking points from the races last week? Well, it was another fantastic weekend for Nairoman, wasn't it? Um, Arkea, Samsung have had an absolutely barnstorming start to the season. I'm going to defer to Lionel for all chat about relegation because my eyes glaze over. Um, although, you know, I can see, we can already tell that this is... This is proving quite the subplot to the 2022 season that all of the teams that are, well, risk not getting a World Tour slot next year and who want one have clearly tried 
to start the season very fast and Adkea Samsic um, have certainly done that. I mean, I expect, I don't know, Lionel, I expect Lotto Sudal to sort of sat John Lelong and appoint Sam Allardyce at some point around around August, the way things the way things are going. But it could, well, it looks as though it's going to be quite so spicy towards the end of the season. But um, on uh, Night Oman, a uh, fantastic ride. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of accustomed to seeing brilliant rides from um, Nara Quintana, so perhaps that relegates him from the Castellet Prize, but certainly his race-winning um, stage win on the last day, particularly having tried so hard the previous day and being, having been pipped by Tim, the parsnip Wellens, um, I think that was that was really impressive and a fantastic stage, brilliantly set up by Arkea, by Nicolas Ede. Um, they sort of sent him down the road as a satellite rider and then he dropped back and led Man out. Um, just on Quintana, last week we talked about his contract situation. He's got, well, one more year. This is the last year of his contract with Arkea Samsic. We sort of speculated last week about whether he may renew or not. Um, spoke to some people with intimate knowledge of that situation um, in the last few days. And no decision's been taken. There's no particular rush at the moment, but... I got the sense that it was he's sort of 60-40 maybe in favour of leaving at the moment, Nidal Man. Probably slightly more likely to leave um, than to stay. I did broach the possibility, mention the possibility of him going back to Movistar and that apparently is very unlikely. Maybe slightly less unlikely for Richard Carapaz. I believe, who's also out of contract at the end. Of the Just season. on the promotion relegation battle, I mean, Arkea Samsic are holding one of the World Tour positions at the moment. They're, of course, seeking to get a World Tour licence, aren't they? Uh, Kofidis and Lotto Sudalis, the two teams that are still in uh, jeopardy, but Antel Marche have moved up a place, nudging Israel down one, and it's Total Energies who I think we need to keep an eye on because... Um, they're really playing catch-up in this battle to get a World Tour card and have Peter Sagan will presumably hope to score plenty of big points with him and others as the spring wears on. Um, I thought the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var, I mean, it's a, it, a name that needs a rebrand, really, isn't it? I mean, Daniel, you couldn't remember what it was. It doesn't exactly uh, trip off the tongue, uh, even for a fluent French speaker like Richard, I suspect. But um, as a race, I thought it had real mini Paris-Nice vibes. Um, it, 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 well, the second stage, particularly uh, with the Coldairs and uh, coming down the descent that I think they went down on the opening weekend of the 2020 Tour de France, where Miguel Angel Lopez crashed into what looked like a garage door. Um, but Quintana really rode exceptionally well, I thought. And it was great to see, I don't know if we're calling Tim Vellens the parsnip, what are we calling Thibaut Pinot or the first sort of sighting of Thibaut Pinot <laughs> for the season? I just don't know. The, the, maybe the something, the Jerusalem artichoke. Um, <laughs> but very, not, not very seldom seen widely misunderstood but he was gambling and frolicking like one of his baby goats wasn't he um until suddenly he wasn't and uh looked a little bit ill at ease but um yeah was riding well until he wasn't i suppose is the way to summarize that but a cracking little race that and i guess that just leaves portugal and uh uh, tour of the Algarve which was uh, can i just 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 stop you there just so i mean you know Nairo man Surely, also a contender for Roland Cassidy for that that that's stage just, win day after he went so close to Vellens. Did you? That's sorry, I, I, I missed that. Yeah. Did, I, sorry, Pay attention at the back. Oh, um, 
those races though chaps though well we've had a couple of the races down in the south of france and um in the last couple of weeks tour de la provence and then um var at the weekend i mean as you said lionel very sort of easy on the eye it's a beautiful part of the world i think it's um they're made even more aggressive in some respects i mean nairo man talked about how knowing the roads was key and it was key to him deciding where to attack when to attack and that applies to a lot of the riders in those races it's a very popular area of france to to train in um, I spoke to a friend of the podcast Lucky Larry Warbass who was also um, riding very well at the weekend and he said that he'd sort of been inspired by riding on home roads and they're just really interesting varied courses and it's great to see um, such a sort of thriving run series of, of races in that part of the world early in the season because it's not that long ago when the Tour of the Med was sort of limped along for a few years and then eventually um, dissolved into nothing and it looked as though there was going to be almost nothing left as far as early season races were concerned in that part of the world but now we've got Etoile de Bessege and we've got another race coming up this weekend and it's um, they're, they're a real asset to the calendar and races that I really enjoy watching. So let's just answer that question then does Nairo Man get the Cassillet prize? Has he taken over from Lutsenko? Ooh. It's tough that's tight, isn't it? But I think Lutsenko still just about nudges it. Yeah, I think. On the basis that it's it's easier to imagine Lutsenko tucking into a castellet. I can't really see Nairo sitting down for... Yeah, I mean, French is that going to be one of the criteria? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but it was it was two <laughs> cracking stages, wasn't it? And you know, real racing stages. I thought uh, FDJ with uh, Michael Storer up there as well, and uh, and as you mentioned, Guillaume Martin uh, for Cofidis going well again. Um, some really encouraging signs there. Uh, I tried to prematurely just go across to Portugal and the Remco Evenepoel show. I mean, talking about the place of time trials in in you know or time trial bikes. No, let's not. I mean, it, it obliterated the GC battle, didn't it? I mean, there was nobody on the same page, really. I mean, Kung and Hater were within touching distance, I guess, but um, big, big margin of... A 30, a 30 kilometres time trial has no place in, or should have no place in a, what was it, a five-stage race? Or a six-stage... I mean, it reminded me of when, up until a few years ago, there used to be a 50, almost a 50-kilometre time trial in the Dauphiné. Mm. Um, and similarly there, everything would would come down to that day and it would completely, well, it would render the rest of the week almost irrelevant. And that was almost the case in Al- Algarve. It's like the old days. At the same time, yeah, at the same time, Evenepoel, I mean, I, again, you know, we we marvel at his physiology, I suppose. He, you know, when, when you, you look at Ghana um, or Bissinger on a time trial bike, you can understand it. Uh, why and how they go so fast even the pole is just this little ball of of power um and he's he's you know small but he and he gets even smaller on the time trial by his position's incredible um and he he goes incredibly fast and there was this question of you know how good was that performance by even the pole he did smash stefan kung who's a very good time trialist we don't know what sort of form he's in um, but how would oh, yeah, Kung looks on great form as well because yeah. Kung was climbing yes. superbly all week. He was, yeah, that's right. And and so you assume that he was in good form. So how would Evenepoel match up against uh, you know Ghana and Wat Van Aert at the moment? P- pretty close, I think, and Bissiger, of course. So yeah, I mean, 
uh, you can't fault him for that performance. Uh, it was extraordinary. Whatever the debate about time trial bikes, but, which mm, we will return to. Mm. No, I'm with you there, Daniel. 30 kilometers in a five-day stage race was, was too long. It's like the old days of having a 100K individual time trial in the... Um, Tour de France, um, just uh, the balance of it a little bit wrong. Um, and I suppose it took a little bit of the drama out of that final stage, didn't it? But uh, other notable things, I thought the finish line or the, the, the run in to the finish of the stage at Davy Gordou one where uh, Tobias Foss and Sergio Iguita collided and, and came down, that was uh, quite extraordinary. And the well the final day Igita bounced back didn't he because he got the the stage win ahead of Danny Martinez who of course they used to be teammates didn't they at EF um I thought that was a really good stage even though there wasn't the the dual battle of uh you know a, a GC race as well as the race for the stage win but again seeing lots of big powerful riders up the road the likes of Eve Lampart Tom Pidcock um, we're in the break that day as well. And, and I suppose that throws us forward to opening weekend, doesn't it? Because we'll expect to see them involved in the action over the weekend in Belgium. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, Lampard looked very good. Looked as though he was climbing really well, which bodes well for the weekend, um, as well as Stefan Kung, as I mentioned. It was good to see Van der Poel winning at the weekend, or winning last week, wasn't it? That's in the 5,000 and 10,000 meter speed skating in the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> Niels van der Poel. Have you, followed, have you followed this story just incidentally? He's Swedish, isn't he? He is rich. Um, extraordinary story. Extraordinary individual. Um, doesn't seem to like speed skating very much. Says it sucks. And mainly trains on, mainly trains on the bike. He trained... He got ready for the Olympics, for the Olympics with 20 ultramarathons, 1,000 skydives and serving in the army for a year. It's actually, I would recommend, I mean, I know nothing about speed skating, but he's also published online his 62-page manifesto for how to become a speed skater and win Olympic gold. And this is available for everyone. And there are actually some, some really fascinating learnings for anyone who does any kind of endurance sport in there. So I would, I would recommend it. It's a have you read the read. whole thing or have you read a, a kind of filleted I've read version? bits of it. I've read bits of it. I've read bits of it. But alas, um, the other Vanderpool will not be in action, will he? At the weekend? Not immediately. We're not sure yet when he will return. There are other one-day races this weekend which have spectacular fields. Fonar Desch uh, on Saturday and the Drome Classic on Sunday. And, uh, well, Primoz Roglic will be making his start to the season uh, in those two races, other, you know, Alaphilippe is, is riding as well. Very good fields for those races. Um, arguably, arguably better than for our opening weekend. Um, but maybe, maybe not, but the very strong fields anyway. Well, it's horses um, for courses, suppose, surely, no. I mean, yes, it's horses for courses. Absolutely. Shall we hear a little bit from Primoz Roglic, who I spoke to last week? I he don't was, know. Uh, you know what I mean, huh? Well, that was Primoz Roglic speaking <laughs> from his altitude training camp in Tenerife uh, last week. Let's just hear a little bit from uh, Roglic on his uh, training camp and uh, upcoming start to the season. Your program is not is not confirmed, although um, you know we know you'll be riding the Tour de France. But it looks as if you will be riding a pretty full program up to the Tour de France. You you skipped a lot of races last year um, before the Tour. Is that something? 
you're not going to do again this year. Yeah, it's true. Uh, still, we need to see uh, because yeah, first uh, something is what you plan, and uh, the other thing is in reality what really happens. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, hopefully, I hope for that I can do uh, all the races. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we we try to, to approach it like that this year. I'm sure you don't regret it, but um, in hindsight, given what happened at the Tour de France, was it a mistake to to maybe miss all those races, or was it worth trying just to see what kind of condition you could achieve doing that going into the Tour? It's always easy to be smart. I think after uh, after uh, afterwards or uh, after a war, I think is a lot of. Uh, people that knows uh, what w- went wrong but uh, yeah uh, you know you have to do some decisions uh, we approach it the way we did and uh, yeah uh, this time uh, normally a bit different uh, but uh, like I said uh, we yeah you, you do the things that you need uh, at that moment so yeah if that means races you race if not uh, it's not even necessarily uh, and uh, I just uh, to have fun all the way well, we we ask you a lot about the Tour de France because I suppose it's the biggest event. But you know, you've won the Vuelta three times. You've won Liège, Bastogne, Liège. You've you've got an Olympic gold medal as well. I mean, for the for you, is the Tour de France so important, or do those other races mean a lot to you as well? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's more important for you, journalists, than uh, and, uh, all the people around uh, than uh, than for me, but. Uh, like I said, uh, I will. Uh, yeah, every race is a hard race. Uh, nowadays, it's not really easy races. Uh, for sure, not easy wins. So uh, yeah, uh, let's start with uh, the start of the season. Uh, see how it goes, and uh, yeah, uh, for me, is the most important. And that uh, at the end, you're healthy. Uh, you keep that and keep the fun uh, in uh, in everything doing it. And. I mean, I'm going to contradict myself here because I'm going to ask you about the Tour de France again. We've got a, a cobbled stage. We've got, you know, time trials. Um, what are your thoughts about those? And, and do you, I mean, and we know Tadej Pogacar is riding some of the, the cobbled races in Belgium. Would you fancy doing that as well? Or are you just happy to go and uh, recon that stage? Yeah, again, you know what I mean? I also did a recon last year uh, of the last uh, time trial of the Tour de France and... Uh, it didn't quite help me much. Huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, you know, uh, we'll see. Huh? Uh, definitely, uh, you have to be. Uh, the fact is super good uh, yourself, the whole team, uh, and yeah, you need a bit of luck to have on your side to to go through everything. I was going to ask you as well, Primoz, about um, a couple of things. Uh, Egan Bernal, terrible crash recently, of course, and and Chris Froome uh, has suggested that you know time trial bikes are perhaps dangerous. Um, I guess training on the open road can be very dangerous, and it, it's those are risks that you you take every day. I mean, what what have what have you made of what did you think first of all of Bernal's terrible accident and of Chris Froome's comment? Uh, yeah, it's uh, the thing that you don't uh, wish to happen to nobody. Huh? Uh, definitely, it's, uh, it was terrible uh, to to see that news. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, uh, on my side, I can just wish him a, a speedy recovery. Uh, and uh, looking forward to to fight uh, again 
against it uh, soon in the races. Uh, and uh, for all the rest, I mean, we all know, uh, I guess, uh, being or spending so much time on the roads uh, day after day, how dangerous it is. Uh, we, we've all been in all kind, I, I guess, in all kind of uh, situations, uh, crashes, but uh, yeah. Need to be super careful, huh? uh, that's, that's, the, that's the fact, huh? uh, compared to, to the car or to, the, to a bus. Uh, yeah, it's uh, not much chance, huh? uh, so uh, yeah, he's, uh, first of all, it's also, yeah, how to say it, you also need to come or survive to come to the races and, and just uh, going through the races. I mean, are the time trial bikes more dangerous, especially in training, given that your head's down, sometimes it, it's not that easy to reach the brakes. Are they, is that more dangerous generally, do you think? Uh, yeah, for sure, huh? for sure. Uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't uh, actually uh, in uh, in Monaco. It's uh, not really uh, how to say it. Uh, big flat parts that uh, mm. you could really enjoy. Yeah, it. So uh, uh, yeah, uh, normally I uh, I leave it more than a race uh, and I ride it uh, for for the races. Well, that was Primoz Roglic, and we will be um, keeping an eye on his races this weekend. Um, kind, of, kind of quite late start to the season uh, relative to most of his competitors. But what it's a big one for you on Saturday, Lionel. Um, what are you looking forward to most about Het News Blad? Well, actually, Richard, what I'm looking forward to most about the whole weekend is seeing the new course for Kerner Brussels Kerner and just seeing... Um, the differences between the two races, uh, Omloop Het Newsblad on the Saturday is traditionally the bigger of the two, isn't it? And well, in terms of um, its ranking is bigger anyway, because it's World Tour, whereas Kerner Brussels Kerner isn't. But Kerner Brussels Kerner has kind of rebranded itself as a battle between the breakaway riders and the sprinters. And I think uh, it might tell us a little bit about how the sprinters are shaping up if Caleb Ewan and uh, Fabio Jakobsen get a chance to go head-to-head in a sprint. I think the attackers will have a lot to say about whether it ends up in a sprint. And uh, the new course will also um, have a lot to say, I think, uh, because it's a a little bit of a journey into the unknown. It might be quite a different shape to the race. So that's on Sunday, Kerner, Brussels, Kerner. Omloot Het Newsblad, I just think, is the, the first event of the season that really really matters and i think that is what gives it uh, the sense of anticipation no matthew van der poel as he said but wout van art is riding and although it's not going to be the sort of biggest objective of the spring for van art or the likes of casper Askreen or eve lampart um you know it's not one that uh, you know riders take lightly so seeing the big name riders going head to head is what i'm looking forward to most and just weighing up who looks good and uh, and who doesn't and just to return to um somebody that we've talked about a fair bit today alessandro covey is on the start list for both races and i think uh, he could be a, a really interesting rider to watch particularly on saturday maybe my one to watch on sunday is brian cockar um, I think you know, given given his start to the year, and maybe not an outsider, but um, a strong contender. Um, what about you, Daniel? Do you enjoy these races? Yeah, I mean, they do seem a little bit almost out of context, and it kind of jars having been having watched so much racing in sunnier climes for a couple of weeks now, two or three weeks now, and the landscapes change and the field 
of the races changes, um, the cast of characters changes, and um, it is it almost like a completely new and different parallel season starting. Um, there, there are going to be a lot of interesting talking points. There are a lot of riders we haven't seen anything of really so far. Well, Van Aert, um, a lot of them have been altitude um, Victor Campanuts has been training in Spain I think he's been staying in an altitude simulation tent hotel in um, Calpe or Denia or somewhere like that um, Sonny Cobrelli's been at altitude as well so these um, Peter Sagan also been in Gran Canaria I think so these are guys we don't really know how they're going at all and um, Total Energy I mentioned Sagan there they they sort of fascinate me because I think they've got a good team this year with uh, the criminally rated Anthony Georges and they could surprise a few people I think um, I have to say that the, the, the weather starting from sorry I was just gonna say the weather sorry, forecast, starting from the weekend the weather forecast uh, for Flanders the weekend is sunny both days um not warm as you'd expect but beautiful sunshine so it might not look that out of context I don't know how disappointing <laughs> kidding of course Rich, also, also, I, I don't know if um, how definitive the start list we've got are, but um, if Magnus Sheffield is down, I'm going to be intrigued to see how he he goes because um, although he doesn't necessarily physically look like the most obvious sort of candidate to become a, a, a fantastic classics rider, I've read interviews with him where he's talked about how he loves riding on cobbles and how he thinks he's very good on cobbles. Um, I mean, based on. Based on what we saw from him last week, he could become anything, almost anything um, he wants to become. You know, good climber, good t- pursuitist, good on the track. And yeah, um, the cobbles could be another string to his bow. Well, we'll be reporting next week from uh, opening weekend. I'll be there and uh, we'll have some reaction uh, to whatever happens there. Breaking, breaking news, not really breaking news, but Nick Cox has tweeted to say that Ghana's effort today should be nominated for a performance of the year powered by Castellet. Plus, he says, it's a performance by a non-winner. I don't know. I don't know about that. Not sure about that. I think the role in Castellet, does it need... I mean, I think that's what prompted the question, wasn't it? In the first place, can you have a great performance by somebody who doesn't win the race? That is what prompted the, the question. And we never really, we haven't really resolved it yet. Well, but. you can have a great performance without winning the race, but I think for the Cassoulet Prize, it has to be a winning performance. Okay, well, we have resolved it then. So maybe. I think, well, I you're, think so. you're certainly the arbiter of that. I mean, Daniel can be the arbiter of everything else, but you are the arbiter of who okay. gets the Cassoulet. Yeah, there for we go. sure. Um, am I allowed to quickly mention something I'm moonlighting at in over Flanders weekend? Um, we're hoping to collaborate with them later in the year, but the Flan- Flandrian Hotel in Flanders is hosting a Tour of Flanders weekend. I'm going to be there throughout the weekend. And, uh, uh, well, we've got to know Jamie Anderson and Bernard who run the hotel very well. And uh, it's a great place if you fancy spending the weekend in Flanders for the Tour of Flanders and watching the race and riding your bike with me. Uh, then go to the website, flandrienhotel.com for information. But that's all definitively going solo week. richard aren't you this is uh this is your solo album isn't it unfortunately i'm unable it's like when robbie left <laughs> it's like when robbie left take that <laughs> <laughs> no no you're both welcome as well um you can uh 
go to flandrianhotel.com for details about how to get <laughs> tickets. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. You're both very welcome to come along as well. Anyway, you would have been you would have been Robbie and take that as well. Would or, I? Well, I think it would more, have been you, Gary Barlow. No, I'd be Gary Barlow. I think you'd be Robbie, and Lionel would be one of the other ones. <laughs> quite happy about that i don't know i don't know the other names anyway um that's all for this week thank you very much lionel thank you richard thank you daniel thank you